Every Friday evening, an elderly gentleman makes his way down to a pier on a beach in Florida. Every Friday evening, he carries with him a bucket of shrimp. The shrimp is not for him or the fish, but for the seagulls. They gather around him, squawking and begging. And with a smile on his face, he casually feeds them, handful after handful, until his bucket is empty. And every Friday evening, he returns to his home, grateful. Why this Friday evening ritual? Well, the man was Eddie Rickenbacker, an Air Force captain in World War II. He and seven other men were flying a B-17 across the Pacific Ocean to report a message to General Douglas MacArthur. When the crew became lost, the fuel ran out, and the plane went down. Miraculously, he and the others were able to make their way onto a lifeboat and survive. Day after day, fighting sun and sharks. And eventually, when their rations ran out, fighting hunger and death. On the eighth day, when they thought that they would be completely out of luck, they met together for a quick devotional and some prayer, and then decided to rest. Eddie leaned back against the edge of the life raft, his hat coming just over his eyes. He began to drift off to sleep. When he felt two small feet land upon him, it was a seagull. He knew that if he could catch the seagull, it would mean his survival. He acted quickly and amazingly was able to catch the bird. He and the others on the life raft shared what little meat there was and then used the intestines of the bird to fish. All the men survived. And until the day he died, every Friday evening, he made his way down to the end of that pier to feed shrimp to the seagulls as a way of expressing his gratitude to God for saving him through such a seemingly insignificant animal. Not all rituals are empty. Not all rituals are meaningless. In fact, very few, very few rituals start out without purpose. When we come to the book of Leviticus, we find that it opens with five rituals all of them full and overflowing with meaning. In chapter 1, we examine the burnt offering, wherein a worshiper brings an animal, lays his hand on it, identifies with it, and says, this animal is as me before the Lord. I have wronged God. I am a sinner. I deserve to die. And this animal is my substitute. He sacrifices the animal. And the Lord that says, this is worthwhile. That animal will atone for your sin. You're forgiven. 
In chapter 2, we see them bring the grain offering. It's described for us. It's a way of the worshiper saying to God, thank you for delivering me. I belong to you. I'm yours. You are my king. In chapter 3, we come to the fellowship offering where the worshiper offers an animal on the altar and then burns the fat to the Lord. And then the rest of it is used for a feast between the worshiper, his friends, and his family. And it is as if that worshiper is sharing a meal with God in fellowship. And then last week we came to chapter 4, where we see that this fellowship that one is in with God will, will sometimes be disrupted. We came to the purification offering, which of course, as all the sacrificial offerings do, has a component of substitutionary atonement to it, the animal taking the place of the worshiper, but also carries with it this emphasis of being purified from sin. So that when the animal is offered on the altar, it's going, yes, it is ransoming the sinner from the right wrath of God. It's lifeblood is making atonement and, in the emphasis of the purification offering, the lifeblood is cleansing the sinner. It's cleansing the camp. In Leviticus, there's this really weird way of cleaning things. The way things get cleaned are with blood. And this blood is taken into the innermost part of the temple. In the case of some people who sin, as in the high priest and the whole congregation, they sprinkle it seven times before the Lord. It acknowledges the sin is before the Lord. It's also cleansing the temple. They're cleaning God's space because their sin has not only affected them, not only affected their neighbor, but also the very environment. As you know from last week, uh, the high priests and the whole congregation, when they were guilty of sin, it went into the temple. But even individual Israelites, when they sinned, they had to go through this very similar purification offering. Their blood didn't go into the temple, but was applied simply to the horns of the altar. The point of it all was, sin defiles and makes dirty. It needs cleansed. And it can be cleansed by way of the sin or purification offering. And today, we come to the guilt or reparation offering. If we wanted to be even more clear about it, we might call it the compensation offering. Because this offering, just like the others, has a component of substitutionary atonement in there. The animal's lifeblood is ransoming the sinner from the just wrath of God. And it's doing something else. We see in this offering that the animal is also paying a sin debt to God. And the worshiper who has wronged his neighbor or his brother or sister in Christ, or in Christ, his brother or sister in the covenant community, is being paid back. These rituals that open Leviticus are full of meaning. They're really neat. And all of them teach us about the complex reality, about our sin, and about how God forgives us, about the cost of sin, with all these different angles on God's love for us. Right? The, the burnt offering gives us uh, an understanding of our need for forgiveness from a personal perspective. We have wronged God. We've done things our way rather than his way. We need a substitute because we deserve to die. And the blood of a perfect sacrifice can cleanse us from sin and make us right with God. 
The purification offering gives us a, a medical picture. Sin defiles us. It defiles the camp. It defiles other. It needs cleaned. And the blood of a sacrifice can wash away sins. And then we, we come to the, the compensation, the, the guilt or reparation offering this morning, and we recognize that when sin occurs, there is a debt incurred to the one who commits the sin. It needs repaid. And only the lifeblood of a substitutionary sacrifice can pay the debt of sin. And as we've said throughout our Leviticus journey thus far, all of these things are signs and symbols that point us to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better burnt offering. Jesus is the purification offering. Jesus is the guilt offering. Jesus is the perfect substitute who dies in our place on the cross for our sins. So that when we come to him in repentant faith, we can be forgiven. Jesus is the purification offering. He is the one whose blood washes away our sin. Jesus is the guilt or reparation offering. He's the one who pays for our sins with his blood. Even in Leviticus, we find that all of the Bible is about Jesus. It all points to Jesus so that we might know and worship God. With that in mind this morning, we come to our verses in Leviticus, verse 14 of chapter 5 on through verse 7 of chapter 6. And the main idea, I've summarized it this way, is that Jesus is the guilt offering who pays the sin debt of all who repent and believe the gospel. And then in light of that, I want to exhort you to believe the gospel and bear the fruit which is consistent with repentance. And we'll find that the sin or compensation offering is necessary in two particular cases, when the Lord's things are misused or when the Lord's name is misused within Israel. We'll walk through that. You can see it in your outline. And before we get started, we will pray. Father, we come before you this morning as a people who are in need of your mercies anew. We all confess we have failed to be holy as you have declared us to be holy in Christ this week. We ask for your fresh forgiveness, knowing that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you that our salvation, our being included in your family, is not contingent upon our ability to live perfectly, but our in-Christness. It is in Christ that we place our faith this morning, God. We renew that commitment to follow him, to obey him, because he has changed us. But we trust in him. We thank you that all of these rituals and sacrifices point us to him in a fresh way. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself perfectly in Jesus who is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, who became like one of us so that we might become like him. 
But we thank you for Jesus who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead so that we too might rise. Let us listen and preach and submit ourselves to your word for his glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the procedure for the guilt or reparation offering isn't actually before us in chapter 5 where where our passage is. We see a little bit of it in chapter 7. And so we're we're actually going to start by reading in chapter 7 and then come back to chapter 5. So chapter 7, verse 1. Now this is the law of the guilt offering. It is especially holy. The guilt offering is to be slaughtered at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. And the priest is to splatter its blood on all sides of the altar. The offerer is to present all the fat from it, the fat tail, the fat surrounding the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins. He will also remove the fatty lobe of liver with the kidneys. The priest will burn them on the altar as a fire offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Any male among the priests may eat of it. It is to be eaten in the holy place. It is especially holy. The guilt offering is like the sin offering. The law is the same for both. It belongs to the priest who makes atonement with it. And so even in chapter 7, where we get a glimpse of this procedure, we're not given a ton of details. But from what we're able to piece together, the procedure for this offering looked a whole lot like the purification offering with, with two big differences. One would be the cost of the animal. It would be an unblemished ram, which is a valuable animal. It's a more costly offering. And then the second thing would be the placement of the blood. It's not on the horns of the altar, but on the base of the altar. It's not simply placed on the horns. It's splattered against the altar in order to demonstrate that the person is being ransomed from their sin. And this offering is given in the case of pretty serious sin. It's significant. That's why it's costly. And it gives us a commercial picture of sin, that that sin incurs a debt that has to be paid. And so we ask ourselves, what kind of sins would require this particular offering? And we see in our passage that the occasions upon which this offering would be offered are the misuse of God's holy things and the misuse of God's holy name. Look with me at chapter 5 and verse 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, If someone offends by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, he must bring his penalty for guilt to the Lord, an unblemished ram from the flock, based on your assessment of its value in silver shekels according to the sanctuary shekel, as a guilt offering. And so right away, this word for offends, when they're talking about sin, is mayal in Hebrew. And it refers to everything from adultery to idolatry. It includes worshiping pagan deities and trespassing against somebody that you are in a covenant relationship with. It carries with it the weight of ideas that relate to unfaithfulness and infidelity. Now, so this is, this is not a small matter. The idea is that these are heinous sins. And so you go, well, what kind of heinous sin could happen? 
It says it unintentionally in regard to the Lord's holy things. The question comes, what? What are the holy things to the Lord in Israel? In chapter 27 of Leviticus tells us that the holy things of God are anything that is dedicated to him. And so specific dedicated animals, dedicated houses, dedicated food items. It's especially food items that are in view here. The idea being that you could eat some of that food that was specially reserved for the priest. Leviticus 22 helps us here. Let me just read to you. Leviticus 22, verse 10. No one outside of a priest's family is to eat the holy offering. A foreigner staying with a priest or a hired worker is not to eat the holy offering. But if a priest purchases someone with his own silver, that person may eat it. And those born in his house may eat his food. If the priest's daughter is married to a man outside a priest's family, she is not to eat from the holy contributions. But if the priest's daughter becomes widowed or divorced, has no children, and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may share her father's food. But no outsider may share it. If anyone eats a holy offering in error, he is to add a fifth to its value and give the holy offering to the priest. The priest must not profane the holy offerings. The Israelites give to the Lord. By letting the people eat their holy offerings and having them bear the penalty of restitution, for I am the Lord who sets them apart. And so you can kind of see a scenario in which somebody would unintentionally sin against the Lord's holy things. So priest's house would have both um, sacred food that was only to be eaten by him and his family, his household, as well as kind of regular food that anybody could eat. So maybe you could picture the scenario. A young girl goes and she gets married. She's from a priest's family. Her daddy's a priest. She comes home on the weekend to visit mom and dad and she is just rummaging in the pantry there and she finds something. She says, this, this bread looks delicious. It's fresh. I'm going to have some. And, and she's just snacking on it at the island in their kitchen and then mom comes around the corner and oh, honey, that's, that is the sacred bread. You can't eat that. I know you've eaten it your whole life, but you can't eat that anymore. This is a sin against the Lord. Well, what's a girl to do? Offer the guilt offering, the compensation offering. She's to restore plus 20% whatever it is that she took. And she is to offer a blemishless ram. That's what the text tells us. And you notice this part, I read it already, based on your assessment of the ram's value in silver shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel, they just didn't have standardized weights and measures. And so the idea here is that this is a, this is a costly offering. You have to offer an unblemished ram. And unblemished rams don't grow on trees, right? They're expensive. They're, they're valuable. And you have to offer one that is as valuable as the current going rate. And the way we're going to measure its value is based on the sanctuary shekel, which might be different than other weights and measures in the culture. You see, the point, though, is that the offering is to be costly. Verse 16, he is to make restitution for his sin regarding any holy thing, adding a fifth to its value. 
and give it to the priest. So they're restoring that which was taken. Then the priest will make atonement on his behalf with the ram of the guilt offering, and he will be forgiven. Sin, unintentional or not, is costly. Forgiveness is available, but it doesn't come cheaply or casually. It costs. I think sometimes when we sin, even unintentionally, we try to quickly dismiss it or excuse it. I didn't know any better, so it's not that big of a deal. Or my heart was in the right place. So it's okay. Our illustration with the girl who came and ate bread from the pantry, she's, my heart's in the right place. What does it matter? You're, you're, you're guilty. You ever tried that line on a police officer after you've been speeding? Officer, I know I was going 20 miles per hour over, but listen, my heart was in the right place. No, you're guilty. You're guilty for breaking the law. And there is a debt, a penalty that comes with that. Likewise, when we break one of the commands of God, when an Israelite would break a command of God, even by sinning unintentionally against his holy things, there is a debt, there is a penalty that has to be made. I think one of the things we lose on this side of the cross is some of that kind of hands-on, tactile learning that would have come with the sacrifices. Many of us, we sin, and we go, oh, that was a sin. Lord, forgive me. All right, forgiven. We're good to go. All right. Very casually. But for those who had to perform these rituals, when you repented of sin, this was a very involved process. You had to bring an expensive animal. You had to take it to the altar. You had to slaughter it. And then you had to watch it. In this case, its fat was removed and burned up as to the Lord. Best portions showing that he gets the best. And the rest of it would have been distributed to the priests to help sustain their living. It's just a more vivid picture of sin when you go, I've, I've sinned and now I've brought this animal and there's blood on my hands and it's the blood that forgives me. Christian, do you take your sin seriously enough? Do you approach God's forgiveness in a way that is flippant? Do you just take it for granted? We, we want to understand the cost of forgiveness so that we might rightly respond to God with an appropriate level of gratitude. Christ has saved us. We want to take sin seriously. So that's kind of the, the first scenario of sinning against the Lord's holy things. We have a second scenario starting in verse 17. If someone sins without knowing it, and violates any of the Lord's commandments concerning anything prohibited, he is guilty and he will bear his iniquity. He must bring an unblemished ram from the flock according to your assessment of its value as a guilt offering to the priest. Then the priest will make atonement on his behalf for the error he has committed unintentionally, and he will be 
forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He is indeed guilty before the Lord. There are two ways to understand this passage. The first way says, the person doesn't know how they've sinned, but then discovers how they've sinned and deals with it accordingly. And so they get their guilt offering together and they go and they, they offer um, the sacrifice. It's a little bit problematic, it's possible, but, but it's problematic because one of the big unique pieces of the guilt or reparation offering is making reparation and payment to someone that has been wronged in addition to the sacrifice. And so if the person discovered their wrong and then didn't make repayment, that would not be a great compensation offering. And so the second way to understand the passage is that the person feels as if they're wrong, thinks that they've sinned against the Lord, but can't quite put their finger on how and never learns how. And so they actually just bring the sacrifice to the Lord and ask for forgiveness because circumstances or conscience have afflicted them and caused them to feel the weight of guilt. If you're married, maybe you've experienced this a little bit. You walk into the house and you realize that your spouse is not happy with you. You don't know what you did, but it's clear that you've done something, right? And so, you know, there is some restoration that needs to take place here. I'm, I've done something. Or perhaps maybe it's just your conscience. I, I feel guilt. I feel like I've done something wrong. Conscience, it can be wrong, but oftentimes our conscience is right. It's like a compass that points us to true north. And so what you actually have here is in the law of God, somebody who is through circumstances and conscience feeling convicted of their sin. And so what they do, they're able to bring this sacrifice and have their guilty conscience made clean or clear. This is, this is remarkable. God has made a way for those who have, do they feel like they've sinned? They fear the worst. Oh, maybe I sinned against God's holy things and, and they've got a guilty conscience and he's made a way for them to have their conscience cleared, to live before him in a way that is guilt-free. And what's remarkable about it is it shows us the heart of God. God does not desire for his people to walk around crushed beneath the weight of guilt, stricken in conscience constantly. No, God wants us to live free of our sin, free of our guilt, because Jesus has paid for it. Don't walk under the weight of of guilt. Remember that when you came to Jesus, you took his yoke upon you. And his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Don't be weighed down by a guilty conscience. Be quick to remember that Jesus has promised you that if you put your faith in him, your sin will be forgiven. And be faithful to, as 1 John 1 says, when you sin, to repent of it quickly, to restore that relationship with God. Right? We're always complete in Christ. If we're truly in him, we're in the family of God and nothing can change that. But when we sin against God, the relationship becomes a little strained. And so we must 
repent so that our relationship can be restored. And while our conscience can be right, and sometimes lead us to a proper repentance, sometimes the feeling of guilt is also the consequence of just a very, very clever tactic by the evil one. The enemy loves to whisper in the ears of the people of God, don't you remember when you did that? There's no way you could be forgiven of that sin. When that weighs you down, you need to follow the example of Martin Luther who said this, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. It's important to remember ourselves of these wonderful theological truths that when we confess our sin before God, he, he forgets them. The idea is that not that he forgets them completely and doesn't remember them anymore. The idea is that he's not going to hold them against us. He forgives them. We need to remember that when we come to Christ in faith repentantly, he separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Forgiven completely. When we are feeling accused by the accuser, we need to remind ourselves of the promises of God. And if there is sin, we need to repent quickly and enjoy the forgiveness of God. God doesn't, hasn't designed his people to walk around with a guilty complex. In fact, it's just the opposite. What are you walking around with an assurance of our salvation in Christ, that our sin debt before God has been paid, that we are forgiven, that we have been declared in Christ not guilty? That, that frees you up to live faithfully. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Indeed, I love this passage in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. The cross and resurrection are a giant stamp across history that says if your faith is in Christ Jesus, your sin is paid in full. It's done with. It's forgiven. So Christian, live by the Spirit, full of the love and joy that comes from knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't be crushed by sin and guilt. God desires that that when we are convicted of sin, that we can quickly come and confess it, repent of it, and enjoy the feeling of being free 
from the debt of sin. So those are the misuses of God's holy things and their prescription for this guilt or compensation offering. Now let's look at the misuse of God's holy name, which is in view in chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses. When someone sins and offends the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in regard to a deposit, a security, or a robbery, or defrauds his neighbor, or finds something lost and lies about it, or swears falsely about any of the sinful things a person may do, once he has sinned and acknowledged his guilt, he must return what he stole or defrauded, or the deposit entrusted to him, or the lost item that he found, or anything else about which he swore falsely. He will make full restitution for it and add a fifth to its value to it. He is to pay it to its owner on the day he acknowledges his guilt. Then he is to bring his guilt offering to the Lord, an unblemished ram from the flock according to your assessment of its value as a guilt offering to the priest. In this way, the priest will make atonement on his behalf before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for anything he may have done to incur guilt. And so what we have here is all these kind of theft-related sins. But what's undergirding all of them, what makes this significant, is that the person who has stolen or defrauded or done something to wrong his neighbor is also swearing in the name of the Lord that he did no such thing. This is pretty deliberate sin. But as we saw last week, even with deliberate or high-handed sin, when it is confessed, it gets moved into that category of unintentional sin or forgivable sin. In other words, when repentance comes, it makes sin forgivable. So even this person that stole these items from his neighbor and lied about it in the name of God, the holy name of God, this person can be forgiven. Love, uh, the rabbis said, Great is repentance, which converts intentional sins into unintentional ones. Repentance makes even a sin, an offense, a may all, as significant as taking God's holy name in vain, it makes it forgivable. But we still have some questions. How does this scoundrel who has stolen, defrauded his, his neighbor, how, how does he decide that he's going to confess his sin and repent? I think uh, through circumstances and through conscience, he eventually comes to repent of his sin. You see, uh, in verse 17 of chapter 5, if someone sins without knowing it, violates any of the Lord's commandments concerning anything prohibited, he is guilty and he will bear his iniquity. The idea is that sin has consequences. And so when the person sins and has some things that are, are going on, he's, he's bearing his iniquity. That, together with his conscience, eventually leads him, or her, to repentance. You know, what does that repentance look like? What does it look like to bring the guilt offering? And you'll notice that this requires restoring the relationship not only with God, but with the person defrauded. They have to restore what was lost plus 20%. Now, if you're a really big scholar and you paid attention when we went through Exodus way back when, 
you know that the penalty for stealing can, has a wide range. You can have to pay back 200% of what was stolen to 500%. And so the question comes, why only 20%? And I think the answer is because this person has been convicted and is confessing. And so it's incentive to confess rather than to be convicted, as is the case in Exodus. Make sense with me? And so this person comes confessing and they make restitution, not just to God, but by restoring that which was taken from their neighbor. And this shows us a really important truth. When we sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ, it is not sufficient for us to just confess that sin to God. We also must go and confess that sin to our brother or sister in Christ and ask to be forgiven. We're to aim for restoration with them. It's this teaching in Leviticus that undergirds Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Verse 22, Jesus says, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. The idea here of a brother or sister having something against you, it's, it's something legitimate, okay? This is a case where you've legitimately wronged someone else, your brother or sister in Christ, and you owe them restitution. It's not somebody's just mad at you. Because if that were the case, then Jesus, he would have never been able to actually come and offer a gift. He never would have been able to worship because somebody was always angry with Jesus. Somebody always had something against Jesus. And so it's, it's something legitimate. It's a case in which you owe restitution. And the prescription is intense. If you are offering your gift on the altar and you remember that someone has something legitimate against you, you've wronged them, you owe them restitution. Jesus says, stop worshiping. Stop offering your sacrifice. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer your guilt. And for many, this is not a quick trip to Jerusalem. This would take tons of time. It's not like you just hop in the car and go and then come back and you're done in 20 minutes. God requires full-orbed and genuine repentance. He asks not just that we confess to him, but that we confess our sin and repent of our sin to one another. And he ties that to our worship together. The idea is, don't, don't come to worship and tell me that you love me if you are dishonoring me by acting in an unloving way toward your brother or sister. wonder, is there somebody that you need to reconcile with this week before you come back to church next Sunday? We're to be a people that repentantly and humbly, when we wrong one another, go and say, I'm, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? What, what can I do 
to help make it right. God has us repent genuinely. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in life. A repentance that doesn't change the way we are living is not repentance. Don't fall prey to the deception of false repentance, what Paul calls worldly sorrow or worldly grief in 2 Corinthians 7, where he writes, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. Because godly grief produces a repentance that leads to life or salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. He's saying there is a repentance that is false and fake. And it's really just feeling sorry. And there is a genuine repentance that leads to life without regret or to salvation. A repentance that changes the, the course of one's life. Do you see the difference here? I, mean, I think Zacchaeus is an excellent example of this in Luke chapter 19. Everyone is, Zacchaeus is tax collector. Nobody really likes him. He's short. Climbs up in the tree to see Jesus. And we read in verse 5, chapter 19 in Luke, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down from there, because it's necessary for me to stay at your house. So Zacchaeus came down and welcomed Jesus joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay it back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And you see, what happens in Zacchaeus' life is he doesn't just say, I'm sorry, and then leave all these relationships in shambles. No, he goes to repair the relationships by paying back that which was stolen or taken. And he pays it back in an extravagant way. I'll give half my possessions to the poor. Anyone I've extorted from, I'll pay back four times as much. It's far greater than just the 20% in the guilt offering. Zacchaeus is a a generous man. He's, he's been changed by his encounter with Jesus. And if you are changed by your encounter with Jesus, what happens is, is you begin to obey and follow Jesus. And one of the ways that you do that is by repairing your relationships with others. You begin to love God by way of loving your neighbor as yourself. When we are changed by Jesus, our whole lives change. Our preferences are no longer what's most important. 
our convictions and our most dearly held beliefs now have to change so that they are in line with what Jesus says. Because he's the Lord of our life, not us. And so our allegiance is no longer to what what our heart feels is right. Our allegiance is no longer to following our heart, but to listening to God's voice. This is how repentance takes place. God becomes God in your life, and you stop playing the role of God in your life. We see from the guilt offering that God requires real repentance. And once that real repentance has taken place, once restitution has been made and compensation has been made to the one that has been defrauded, the priest comes, takes the unblemished ram and makes atonement on behalf of the worshiper before the Lord. And he is forgiven. Forgiveness doesn't mean freedom from consequences. Part of the consequence of thieving, thievery, robbery in this particular passage, part of the consequence is paying back plus 20%. Forgiveness costs. And friends, the debt that your sin has incurred against God is one that you can never, ever repay. You can't make that relationship with God right. Only Jesus Christ, who poured out his blood on the behalf of all who put their faith in him, can make you right with God. Only his blood can wash away your sin. Only he can pay the debt of sin that you owe to God. And he'll pay it if you repent of your sin and put your faith in him. And don't get me wrong, repentance and faith are not some work that you do in order to garner salvation. Repentance and faith are merely the hands by which we take hold of the gift of God's forgiveness. It's merely the way we express our dependence on God's provision and his grace. Indeed, he has provided for us. He always planned for Jesus to be the true and lasting, sufficient, all-satisfying, and the last burnt offering. Isaiah tells us about this as he predicts the death of Jesus in Isaiah 53, in that famous passage. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was, He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Yet, he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. 
Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had spoken no deceit. And yet... The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels and bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Jesus is the guilt offering who pays for our sin debt and ransoms us to himself. We deserve the wrath of God and Jesus, who deserved nothing but the blessing of God in life, took the wrath of God in our place for our sin, paid our sin debt on the cross so that we could have what he deserves, blessing. Christian, rejoice in this wonderful truth. Non-Christian, get rid of your guilt. Get rid of your sin debt. and Put your faith in Jesus. He is the guilt offering who pays the sin debt of all who repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for instead of pouring out your right wrath against our evil, instead you chose to treat us unfairly, to give us grace to give us Christ as a sacrifice for us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus didn't stay dead, but that he satisfied all that your justice demanded and is risen, is ruling and reigning from heaven right now, and is one day returning to end evil fully and completely. We thank you for this truth. We look forward to that day together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.